0: So we figure, you know, we're getting the complete, total professional blow-off. Had to ask it. We just had the coolest moment of our lives, spending 20 minutes talking with the former second most powerful man in the world. I got my autographs of my book. I'm really happy. Lance is really happy. We go back to the radio station. We're telling our market manager the story. All of a sudden, my phone rings. I pick up the phone. It's his people saying, the president would love to be your guest. Get out. We're like- uh, 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 uh. <laughs> President Dave Chachi
1: Dennis loves radio. And all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> Big welcome. Ken Charles, program director for K N X here in Los Angeles. Thank you. As well as the format captain for news for Intercom.
0: Yep, I'm one of them. Me and Ben Meverack at Ten Ten Wins in New York. We're kind of co conspirators in this whole thing. So he's got my back, I got his back, and together we're hoping to take over the world.
1: All right, well, congratulations on that. I know that's a relatively recent promotion, and I want to go into it a little bit deeper as we get further along in your career. But I want to take us all the way back to the very beginning oh, of God. the early days of uh, of Ken Charles. But before we get, by the way, that's
0: kind of like an episode of The Flintstones. So.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think you had like it was a pterodactyl, right? The yeah. alarm clock that they had. No, I don't think you're that old, Ken. They're close, yeah. Um, let's start quickly with uh, your beverage of choice you choose or tell us what you chose and right. i've got a funny story about it
0: so i chose bombay sapphire gin which wherever i go whatever i do that's my drink that's my thing i you know i started drinking gin and tonic at a really young age um, and i started like in most people cuz you don't know with Tanqueray. sure and i actually the, the there's a guy named dick Marchenko, okay who was the guy who created seal tame 6 um, really, really cool, interesting guys. written a number of books. They kind of didn't want him to write the book about Seal Team 6 and other things. He created a, a series of novels called Rogue Warrior, and his drink of choice was Bombay Sapphire. So about 25 years ago, when I found the books and found out about him, I was like, you know what? Screw it. No more Tanqueray. I'm drinking Bombay Sapphire and ordered my first one. It's a great gin. And compared to Tangare. It's the gold standard for me.
1: That's a great story, man. It's a. have it's got a badass Bombay Sapphire story as well. Cool. My grandmother grew up in New York and she was a pretty hardened New York personality. She wasn't the stereotypical grandmother that would make you cookies and say sweet things to you. The first thing she would always say to me when I saw her, she'd be like, what do you want, you dumb shit? God damn it, get over here. She's actually who taught me to drink. She took me to Vegas. I was maybe 15 or 16 years old and basically taught me to drink and her drink was Bombay Sapphire. So when we were picking this out, it gave me obviously warm memories of my grandmother who was a badass, much like uh, the SEAL Team Six. And a badass like Ken Charles. So.
0: Very cool. Badass like yourself, badass like grandma. Cheers. <laughs> That's cool. Grandma, badass. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. She really was.
1: She was a diehard uh, sports fan as well. She grew up in Brooklyn, so she was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan and then came out here to L.A. So loved Vin Scully talking about broadcasting. And to this day, next to her urn, we have a Vin Scully bobblehead. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so she's still listening to Vin call the games.
0: You know, the difference is, you know, my grandmother took me to the circus. Your grandmother took you to Vegas, you know? My grandfather was a Dodger fan, stayed in Jersey, became a Met fan— Your grandmother came out to L.A. and just followed the Dodgers.
1: Yeah, and I never knew this up, really up until maybe 10 years ago, but the Mets colors, talking about the Mets, are orange and blue, which is an homage to the Giants and to the Dodgers, which I think is such a cool story.
0: And as you know, the Mets is actually short for Metropolitans. I know that. It's not actually, you know, because what the hell is a Met? Right, right. You know, a Met is not, it's the Metropolitans. They just short it, just like the Dodgers are the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. Right, that's right. You know, and then they shorten it. Of course, yeah. there's no trolleys out here, and there's just crazy drivers. Yeah.
1: Now, you're a, you're obviously a news guy, but your sports knowledge is unbelievable, so I want to talk about that in a minute. I'm but just a dork, dude. You are, you are not. You are honestly, and I, I've told the story many times, but we had gone to dinner, Miriam, your wife, and uh, my wife, Bonnie, and this was probably a month before the election, And I remember you very distinctly calling that Donald Trump was going to be elected the president and I, absolutely did not believe you, and I remember us having a, not a heated conversation, but definitely a debate going back and forth, and you're like, I'm telling you this is what's going to happen, and I know there's a lot of people now that claim that oh yeah, I called it, I knew that Donald Trump was going to be the president, but you 100% did, and I witnessed it, and it was at least a month before the election, and so that's always
0: stuck with me. Well, you know, so here we are what, nine months before the election, eight months, and I'm going to tell you again, he's going to win again. He is, you're calling that. He he absolutely is. The the Democrats are going to, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon on your point of view, steal victory or you know steal defeat out of the jaws of victory. They are. I mean, look look what happened in Iowa. Do you re, you know? I've talked to a number of Bernie people who are right. like, if Bernie doesn't get the nomination, I'm not voting for anybody else. But wait, so you're saying you're a Democrat? You support Bernie? That means you don't want Donald Trump. So if Bernie doesn't get it, your goal to get rid of Donald Trump from the White House is not as important as Bernie. And they're like, yeah, if Bernie doesn't get it, I'm not voting. That really hurts the Democrats. Biden's, I mean, he's fourth in Iowa. He's not going to win New Hampshire. Bernie for sure is. You know, you got South Carolina, which should be a good thing for Joe Biden. But then you hit Super Tuesday. Bernie's leading in California. He's leading in a number of other states. You know, so the question now is... Can Bernie win? Can Bernie beat Donald? Buttigieg, I surely don't believe can or will. And it just, it it doesn't look good in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Now, do you think coming in late with Bloomberg and Steyer, and it's been good for radio because I hear their commercials running a lot. A lot. A lot. But do you think it's going to be too little too late? Um,
0: You know, Bloomberg's an interesting case. Steyer, not so much. In in fact, if Steyer would like, instead of spending, and you know, look, don't drop your radio money. But if he'd like to take some of his TV money <laughs> and just give it directly to me, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll vote for him. I'm good. You you can buy me, because he's got. I mean, what did he get? Point three in Iowa. Right. I mean, point a point three. Not even three. A point, point three. three. So it's like Styer's not. Right. Bloomberg is an interesting case because he's kind of targeted his money towards Super Tuesday in California. He is a billionaire. He's got unlimited funds, apparently, to spend on this. And he's actually run something. I mean, for 12 years, he was the mayor of the largest city in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Probably one of the most complicated governments in the world to operate. And he was very effective for 12 years. So, I mean, he's a really interesting case. The question is, can he get enough people in the Democratic Party? As well as I think the key are Obama voters who voted for Trump in 2016. Will they come back to the Democrats, whoever it is, will they go back to Trump or will they sit out? They're, to me, kind of like they will hold the election in their hands.
1: I think just sitting here and listening, I believe a lot of the listeners are going to understand now the way that I feel. I believe you were just one of the most intelligent people that I've ever spent time with. And just well, thank you. speaking to you about current events, about history, uh, about just what's happening uh, in the world, I find absolutely enjoyable and, and fascinating. Was that something as a young
0: kid that, you, that interested you? Uh, so so you know, when I was young, I wanted to be a lawyer. So that's what, So I loved politics. I would sit in my room. I would do two things because I really am a dork. I would listen to AM radio. So I would listen to Marv Albert, Coral, Rangers, and Knicks games. I would listen to Cousin Brucie on WABC. And I would listen to Gene Shepard, who is the author of the movie A Christmas Story on WOR. So, I'd, wow. th- so a total AM dork, which is why clearly I do what I do. But I wanted to be a lawyer. So I was fascinated by politics. Always fascinated by politics. And I would sit in my room and do one of two things. Do weird stump speeches to like my pillows in the middle of the night no when kidding. I was awake. Or I would sit with a transistor radio, make sure I had earphones on so my parents couldn't hear me listening. And I would listen to all of those things as I was growing up.
1: That's incredible. Your parents uh, in law and radio?
0: Uh, no, my, my father was in sales. My mother was an apartment manager. You know, she was a nurse like early on and then an apartment manager and things. Nobody in my family is in journalism. My brother and
1: sister are cops. Did they support you in your uh, aspirations of doing uh, radio?
0: It's kind of mean to say no. My mother told me I was an idiot. (laughs) You know, I'm in graduate school. I got into radio by accident, you know. And again, I'm going to graduate school, A, because I kind of screwed her out a little bit in college like most of us, and I couldn't, I wanted to go to Harvard Law. That's what I wanted to do. And you had huge goals. You know, and my undergrad, you know, look, I did fine as an undergrad because I got into graduate school, but it wasn't getting me into Harvard Law. So I decided to go to graduate school, get a 4.0 in graduate school, and then that would get me where I wanted to go, and I got into radio. So I'm, you know, going for my master's in political science. I'm doing really well. I'm busting my butt. But, you know, I got an accidental job in radio. Um, a kid who lived across the, the the hall from me at Florida State, where I did my undergraduate work, lived in the same place, Tampa. He got a job in radio. I wanted a job. They wouldn't give me a job because everybody knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And then they fired a woman, and I'll never forget her name. Her name is Yvonne Levin. Uh-huh. So they fired Yvonne Levin. All of the full-time board ops went into the program director, who, by the way, is Drew Hayes who is the program director, general manager at KBC here. No kidding. And said, if you don't hire a VOM back, we're going on strike. In my first management lesson in radio, Drew fired them all, said, you don't have to go on strike. You're fired. Oh. Get out. Made my friend and all of the part-timers full-time. They were now so desperate for part-time board ops. I got my gig in radio.
1: That's incredible. So, had you run aboard at this point Nope, nothing.
0: <laughs> nothing. I'd hung around the radio station. Now and again, some of the guys who were on on the weekend would put me on the air because I was a political science guy. Okay. But no. Nobody-
1: by, by the way, Ken is getting over a flu, <laughs> and I'm getting over a cold, so we make a fine pair. Yeah, the two it, of us are going to be coughing. Yeah, and, it's, uh,
0: it's not coronavirus, I promise. <laughs> right. You know, but it was influenza A, you know, I, I... I, I I don't believe in the flu shot. I'm one of those people, like I had a total herd immunity. It's like, no, but clearly my herd isn't as you know smart as I thought they were. <laughs> and so my herd brought flu in. I got the flu and it's just been a living uh, hell ever since. Sorry, man. But anyway, so they made all of the part-timers um, full-time. They were so desperate for part-time board ops, I got a part-time gig. So now I'm working, You know, I'm going to school during the week as, as a graduate student and I'm working as a board op uh, Saturday and Sunday, six a.m. to noon, and coming back Sunday night, working midnight to six a.m. to get my eighteen hours to make a little bit of money for you know cigarettes and gas for my car.
1: Um, so you're burning the candle at both ends,
0: absolutely. But you're just falling in love now. Well, radio—it was the coolest thing in the world. It's like you know, I could say something in somebody's headphones. And it would come out on the air, right? You know, they would use me for different things because of my political background. And then, you know, they had an oak. Op- Drew had left. The new program director comes in. They had an opening for a talk show host on Saturday and Sunday nights. I said I would do it for free. So now they gave me four hours from six p.m. to ten p.m. Saturdays and Sundays to sit in front of a microphone and talk about politics. I was oh. like, "This is the greatest thing that's ever happened." I didn't. Yeah. They, didn't they didn't pay me. So I'm not going to oh, say so they took that. you up on that offer. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that, I mean, look, that's probably why they gave me the gig. It wasn't my sparkling personality. Right. It wasn't my good looks. It wasn't I was a great board op. I was going to work for the right, right price, you know. So now I'm board hopping and doing this. So I'm making, you know, 60 bucks a week. And my mother's like, you're making $2 an hour. You're going to be a lawyer. Are you out of your mind? And I was like, mom, this is the coolest job in the world. I got to go to, you know, Tampa Bay Rowdy soccer games, got to go to Tampa Bay Bandits, got, to, I mean, and I got to hang around a radio station and talk into a microphone and actually have people call me and talk to me about politics.
1: Which you loved.
0: Which I loved. I fell in love with it. By the way, so I would do my show on the weekend when I finally got one and my father was a huge talk radio listener and would call.
1: No way. Uh,
0: Absolutely. Oh, that's neat. So sometimes I would, you know, first of all, the other host would say, oh, Ken's dad's on line three (laughs) and talk to him as, you know, Ken's dad. He would call me. I would talk to him. But sometimes he wouldn't call and would wait till I got home. So it's like 10 o'clock at night. I've just been on the air for four hours. I'm exhausted. I have to go back and be bored, op boy. And he'd want to talk politics. And it was like, listen, dad, I love you, but this is now what I do for a living. I need 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to pay me to talk politics for you. This is my job now. I'm not doing it.
1: So, your family, or at least your father, had political interest and liked to follow what was happening. Yeah. and within government and so forth.
0: Yeah, so I, you know, my brother and sister are cops so but they were my sister was, my brother really wasn't. I was kind of, you know, raised by wolves. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm the anomaly in my family. So you're in graduate
1: school, mm-hmm. you're board hopping and you're doing weekends Correct. all at the same time. Correct. How did you manage
0: that all just youth? Um yeah, you're 20, you're, you know, or 21, you're doing what you love. Um what could be better than that? Mm-hmm. You know, could I do that now? No, I'd be you know right. dead in a, in a corner someplace. <laughs> Were you pulling good grades too? Um, I got a four O. I got I got my master's with that's a four O.
1: Unbelievable! You really know, impressive. It was, and that's my wife's going through her master's right now, and I had no idea how difficult it, it was until now. I've gotten to look over her shoulder a little bit. I don't even know. I can't help her at all. So much of it is over my head.
0: You know, uh, it, it, it 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 it. You know, look, you're reading four or five hundred pages a week you're responsible to go to you know somewhere between 8 and 12 hours of class then you've got all that reading and graduate school is not like undergrad you actually have to not regurgitate you have to think and reason and have an opinion and use what you learn and integrate it into whatever your thought process is and your classes aren't 150 people so that you could be a nameless faceless you know drone sitting in the back for your multiple guest questions right you know in graduate school they're asking you real things because there's five people in your class there's 10 people in your class there's no place to hide when it comes to that it was the most challenging but it was a blast
1: you hear the story from so many people in our business that they fell in love with the radio and then immediately dropped out of school. So you're different in that. Was that because you still were focused on being an attorney?
0: No, it's because I'm stubborn. <laughs> no, seriously, it's like I started, I wanted to finish, you know, and so I did. Now, there are some things, and there were definitely times where I was like, do I really, should I? Um, there was one teacher, you know, it's kind of like the Russian judge in the Olympics you were allowed to drop one class and not have it count. So because of what I was doing professionally, so now as we get towards the end, I'm working full-time. I'm the executive producer at WPLP, so I was booking all of the guests. And there was one class that I missed three times. And three times three times you miss a class, they drop you from an A to a B. Fourth time, they drop you from a B to a C. Now, I got an A in the midterm, I got an A in the final, but he gave me a C, and I ended up dropping it. And the reason I missed so much time is because of booking guests. Sure. And the last time, I would have been like, all right, I'll take the B, what the heck. The C really ticked me off because, all right, I'm a political science guy. There is the overthrow of the government in the Philippines with Ferdinand Marcos. Okay, A guy named Juan Enrile, who was the defense minister, is the guy who engineered this. Okay, I got him on the air with my little radio station in Tampa in the middle of a coup to talk to Bob Lassiter, the host. Um, and to do that, I had to miss class. And that was the, you know, I went back and was like, dude, you don't understand. I got the defense minister of, minister of the Philippines on the air with my host to talk live about the coup, which, by the way, he was engineering in the middle of, and you're telling me that's not a good enough excuse to miss your stupid class? And he was like, sorry, you missed a class. I have to drop your grade to a C. And I was like, you know what? I get to drop one class and not count it. Yours is it. Go, you know what, yourself. And I turned around and I walked out.
1: Unbelievable story,
0: you know, but we did. And, and so the reason, the way we got them is a little bit of guile, a little bit of guts. We had, um, her name was Mati and she was the receptionist. She spoke Spanish. So that helped us get through doors and I just kept feeding her lines and stuff. And because we were the CBS radio affiliate in Tampa, we just kept saying we're the CBS affiliate. So we just somehow, because we kept saying we're CBS in Tampa, we're CBS in Tampa, and she spoke Spanish, we kept getting through all of these doors. I mean, you're talking about, this is 1983. Right. Okay. So people answered their phones. You could call even government officials in foreign countries and get to people. And we kept getting through places. Finally, on the very last one, I'm looking for a minister in relay. And he goes, this is him. And all I could do is pause. I was like, can you hold on, please? And he's like, you know, and I was like, just hang on. This is CBS in Tampa. We're going to put you right on the air live. I go flying down the studio. It's six, It's like 6.05. We're coming out of the news. Bob Lassiter is getting ready to open up his mic. I just barge into the studio, and I throw a newspaper in front of him. Right. And I'm like, this guy on there. This guy <laughs> on there. And he's looking at me. I'm like, no, no, this guy on on there. And so he punches up the line and goes, minister and relay. And the guy goes, yes. And he just spent 20 minutes after that talking to the defense minister of the Philippines about, you know, what was going on, the latest, why, all of this stuff. It was the most amazing moment of my entire life.
1: That is an unreal radio story. Is but, there? Do you have an air check of it?
0: Um, I don't. Oh man, what a shame. I don't, you know, unfortunately it was somebody else's show. I don't. Right. But that, was absolutely worth dropping the class over? Uh, listen, if, if I had to take the C because there wasn't a rule that you could not count one of your classes, I'd have eaten the C just because of what I like, There was never a moment in my mind. We started work on this at like one o'clock in the afternoon. And as it's TikTok getting later and TikTok getting later, there was never a moment where I was like, okay, we need to stop. I'm going to class. I was like, no, 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 we're going to do this because as we kept getting through barriers and people were kind of like moving things along or telling us to do this or call that or whatever, I was just getting more energized and energized. And I was like, we're doing this. This is probably the feeling that hunters have before they shoot some little rabbit or something.
1: It's funny you mention a feeling like that. I sense that feeling. I started as a producer myself and that feeling of just snagging an amazing guest. There's nothing quite like it.
0: No, when, when when you know when everybody says you can't, um, you know we, we did a, a 25th anniversary show for the Apollo 13 when I was in Houston as uh, at KTRH as an executive producer. I stalked Jim Lovell for at least a month. I called and left him a message every day, Mister Lovell, it's me, blah blah blah. Went through it till finally, after just wearing him out, he finally called back and he did the show. And not only was that the coolest moment, talking to Jim Lovell and getting to do the show, but during the show, towards the end, his son called. Now, you've seen in the movie Apollo 13, his son in class at the end watches right. the you know successful landing and stuff. His son calls the show. Well, we figure it out. It's really him. We put him on the air, and he says to his dad—and this is one of those moments where I still get chills—he says to his dad, you know, Dad— There are things I learned about your flight in Apollo 13 that you never told me that I heard today on the radio. Oh my gosh. And then they started talking to each other about things for about four minutes. And it was just one of those moments, you know, like that, where it was just like, yes, stalking him every day, probably annoying the hell out of him, probably leaving, you know, long, stupid messages on his thing was absolutely worth it. I'm
1: I'm actually getting chills from that right now. I don't know if you can see that, but that's just. The magic live radio, too. I don't know if you could even pull that emotion nope. out of something that had been recorded or a video or whatever it may be.
0: But think about it. This goofy kid who wants to be a lawyer, who's fascinated by politics and the world, gets to talk to Jim Lovell and Gene Kranz and you know, Mikhail Gorbachev and Jimmy Carter and George W. Bush. I mean, where do you get to do that?
1: Excellent point. On the other side, though, they must have really seen something in you to be able to do that so early on in your career. I mean, how did you pick up that skill set? These weren't easy guests to what, track down by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Stubborn, inquisitive, and always knowing that you could ask, "Well, if not you, who should I be talking to?" That one question got me more places and more guests because you—you know—look, it's hard to find people today. Our producers are amazing at at, at KNX, but they're using the internet. They're using Twitter. We DM people. I mean, it's amazing how they reach out now. Back then, there was none of that. There was no finding people on Twitter and Facebook and the internet. You had to kind of like know a name, hope there was something in information, start someplace. And then often when you started, it was never where you ended up. But you had to just be persistent. And you had to, when you got somebody on the phone, ask the right question. And I learned early on that for me, the right question was, okay, who should I be talking to? Well, how do I get a hold of them? Do you know? And it's just that persistence and stubborn nature got me where I got. And the other thing is, you know, I, so I'm a board op for morning drive with a guy named Don Richard, dressed as Saul, at WPLP in Tampa. And, you know, it's a three person show, Don the anchor, and on the board up. Well, there was nobody to book guests. There was nobody to do anything. So I just started doing it. We would see, I would see stories in the news or see stuff, and i go, hey, I'm going to try to call this person. And I would just call the person. Sometimes we would get them. Sometimes we would not put them on the air. So I just kind of, you know, being stubborn, being persistent, really just trying to, you know, look, it was a time in this business where if you wanted to do something, say, hey, can I do this? We're like, sure, go ahead. There were no rules. We were writing the rules, honestly, for a lot of this stuff. So I just did that. I was that, that guy.
1: Your stubbornness and your persistence is a remarkable attribute. Um, I don't know if you've yeah, read- my wife
0: doesn't yeah. think that sometimes, but
1: okay. <laughs> well, at least in the business side, but I don't know if you've read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, uh, the guy that uh, started Nike. Oh. And he talks about, there's in, in some business school now, they talk about how you should pivot and people should kind of move, change paths quicker than what we probably were taught in the past. But his whole point was is that charlatans tell you to do that, that you need to stick with something and really give it a chance, that we give up- now too easily, and we we stop because we we, re, we there's a roadblock or whatever it may be, and so we're like, oh, that's it. But that's a really interesting attribute that you brought up. I
0: hate the word no. Me it, too. It pisses me off. Me it's like, too. You know, there's no no. It's like yes. You know, it, it, at the very least, it's no. But but there's no no. There's no I can't do it. There's no I'm not going to do it. There's no I'm not going to try. It's like if you want to be successful, do it. Just don't let the roadblocks that people put up get in your way, you know, and, and and that's, you know, I guess I've been really, really lucky and fortunate in my career that I've had people that I've worked for and with that embrace that about me, that allowed me to be that guy that would fight the good fight, that would not only not say no, but would figure out a way to get yeah. the yes, you know, and a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people don't, want their employees to challenge them. I've been really lucky both with the company I work now, Entercom, CBS, iHeart, that for some reason they embraced that thing about me, um, put me in a position where I could do it and thrive, and here we sit 400 years later.
1: Could not agree more with you, and I think we sometimes surround ourselves with people that are going to agree with us, and that's one of the worst things you can do for a radio station or for a company, whatever it may be.
0: For anything. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, especially in news, but I think in anything, it's a really collaborative business. I'm a, you know, I am a smart guy, I think. You know, I know what I know. No doubt
1: you're a smart guy. You are remarkably smart. Uh,
0: There's a lot of smarter people than me. I'm okay. But, but, you know, I mean, but, but I don't know everything. And it's great to get different opinions from people in your newsroom, from your producers, from your talent, from your news director, from everybody who's floating around because it's amazing the different perspectives you have. Um, and it's amazing. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, it, it's probably my favorite story at KNX. So, when the Rams were coming back to St. Louis, the President uh, Obama at the time was about to do his final State of the Union address. And the announcement from Goodell and Kroenke and all those guys was going to happen at about the same time as the State of the Union. So we had this huge debate inside the newsroom of do we, you know, what happens if it happens simultaneously? Do we right. go to Obama late? Do we just not go to Obama? Do we take the press conference with Goodell? And Which is gigantic news.
1: Gigantic Local news. news. yeah.
0: But I was really torn because it's the president of the United States. Right. You know, and again, it doesn't matter what you think of him, Trump, Bush, whoever, respect the office. Sure. And it's the president of the United States it's his last state of the union address or the rams you know i mean it's a football team it's it's you know the fate of the free world and the rams right and you know i was kind of going back and forth and i had this kind of plan but i threw it up in the newsroom and i asked you know our editors i asked our writers and it was really you know especially me at that point i'd been here less than a year in los angeles I'm kind of the outsider. I know what I know, but I don't know what I don't know. And to get their perspective and they really put me in a position where it's like, you know what? We can, he does the State of the Union every year. He's done seven of them. This is going to be his final one. You know, the next guy is going to do the next one, but the Rams only come back to Los Angeles once. Good point. So the, you know what? I changed my plan midstream. I was like, you know what? Screw it. If it happens simultaneously, we're going to do it. It actually worked perfectly that they made the announcement, Cronky spoke or Goodell spoke, Cronky spoke, and then like two minutes later, Obama began. So we were able to do them both. Couldn't have been orchestrated any better. No, absolutely. But it was somebody in the newsroom who absolutely made me see a different side of it and we changed midstream. And, and I or really, being as
1: connected as you are, I'm surprised you just didn't call President Obama and ask him to hold a
0: couple minutes. <laughs> <laughs> he was busy. He was yeah. in, you know, he, he he was in 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 you know the, the Capitol. And yeah, you know, sure, I get it. Some get people it. take my calls. He wouldn't, <laughs> you know, but but it it it's it's a very collaborative environment, and I've just been really really lucky that, like I said, whether it was iHeart, whether it was CBS, whether it was Intercom, the people that I worked for and with embraced that about me and kind of knew. Um, Because I made my bones as the guy that I would fight. I mean, you need to let me come to bat and fight. But you know what? It's not my radio station. It's your radio station. So as long as you let me fight, you know what? If you make a different decision because you're in that position, I'm going to respect that. And then I'm going to march up the hill, you know, and I'm going to shoot the enemy. That's my job. Uh And so I think that part of it allowed people to trust me and respect me and allowed me to fight. And I didn't. I've I've made my career that way. And I am so thankful for, you know, Tom Pullman and Brad Harden and Brian Olson and Mark Copelman and just the list goes on and on. Scott Herman, my current market manager, Jeff Fetterman, Dan Kearney. You know, all of these people, you know, could have easily just said, you're a pain in the ass, get out, but allowed, you know, me to fight the good fight. Brian Purdy, who's in Dallas, who work, you know, all of these people embraced that part of me and allowed me to do it, and it's the reason I am where I am today. Is all of those people? Yeah. Well, you have worked with some
1: unbelievable people, but they also recognize that you are incredibly good at what you do. They tolerate your being a pain in the ass, probably because you're so fucking good at what you do.
0: Well, I, listen, I, I, when you're, you know, I, I appreciate that, you know, but they did, they did. T- I mean, look. I can tell you a million stories and I won't, but I could where they absolutely could have said just shut up and go away right you know and in many cases, you know they probably wanted to um, in one or two cases they actually did but you know what they they, they embraced the fact that I'm passionate, I kind of know what I know. I believe what I believe and I'm gonna fight for what I believe. And also I did know that boundary. you know there are some people who will fight and just keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and, fighting and never know when to stop. I at least will fight and fight and fight and fight and fight and kind of when I know where I really should stop, I kind of stop.
1: Colin Powell said, and I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but in his book on leadership that he would gather his, basically his staff around him on, I think on a, maybe every morning, I can't recall exactly, but he would let them know what his directives were and at that point, At that time, they had the opportunity to basically say they think this is a good idea, a bad idea, and argue their case, and he would listen to everybody, and sometimes he would change his course, and then other times he would go down the path that he was going to go down, and his point was, look, I'm always going to hear you out, but if I decide against what you're suggesting, I expect you to follow the orders just as if it were your idea. And that's what he would basically demand from his staff. But I thought that was pretty profound that have that dialogue. If we disagree, I'm the boss and I expect you to follow these orders as if they were your
0: own. We, listen, we jokingly in the newsroom say, you know, I get to pull out my program director card. Yeah. You know, but I don't, you know, in fact, you know, my, my news director, Julie Chin, I can't tell you how many times we've had a conversation and you know what, I'll say something, she'll make a face or she'll, you know, ask, do you really think that? And we'll talk it through. Sometimes I'll change my mind. Sometimes I won't. But just the dialogue always ends up with a better decision than anything I would ever make by myself. You know, and she's strong enough that, and she's confident enough, which is really, really cool. And I like that. And I like having those kinds of people with me on my team that will challenge me. It, you know, just having a bunch of people to say, yes, you can do that, but it doesn't result in something great. Having people who are smart and confident who will challenge you, will ask hard questions. You know what? That has the potential to end up with something great and it's worth it. And so I don't mind it. And by the way, we're in news and we're in talk. We spend all day arguing and fighting and telling people to believe us and do that and arguing with callers or politicians or whatever it is. How can I not expect that from the people around me to hold me to a higher standard, to ask me hard questions, to challenge decisions, to provide their input? That's what we do for a living. So how can I expect them to do it with a politician? How can I expect them to do it with a news story and not expect them to do it inside the newsroom with me?
1: It's an excellent point. I never thought about it that way.
0: You know, I mean, that's what we do with talk show hosts, you know, talk show hosts all day spend arguing and telling you, believe this, buy this, do that. Sure. You know what, when they walk into your office and go, I don't believe you're doing that. If you're not strong enough to answer that, you shouldn't be sitting in the office.
1: Did You 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 watch that Mike Wallace documentary?
0: Which one? Uh, Uh,
1: There was one. I just was coming home uh, from Nashville, and it was on a Delta flight, but fascinating. Only got through, unfortunately, about half of it, but just what a phenomenal journalist he was, and just the hard-hitting questions that he wasn't fearful to ask, and had a lot of respect, as I do for you, but to be able to go in and ask the things that you do.
0: Listen, I'm not even in Mike Wallace's league, but look at Don Hewitt and the people he had around him. You know, Those are amazing people. I can't even imagine what an editorial meeting with Mike Wallace must have been. Like if Mike Wallace thought you were wrong, but yeah. Don Hewitt was strong enough and smart enough to surround himself with them and Leslie Stahl and you know all of those amazing amazing journalists who challenged probably everything but it ended up with amazing stories, amazing journalism, and breaking barriers that wouldn't have been broken any other yeah. way
1: and a show today that is still a top-rated television show
0: absolutely is- all built on that
1: yeah. Let's talk about Orlando and your first PD gig. Okay, at INZ. How does that come about?
0: Uh, it, it was WWNZ, but it was part of. Oh, sorry, guy WWNZ. Gannett, So they owned INZ. Got it. Um, you know, it happened kind of. So I was working in TV before that. Okay, so um, wait, you were at, you're down going to school. So how
1: did you transition from radio into TV?
0: Um, so my, so the people who owned WPLP at the time left, bought a TV station, Channel Thirty Two in Tampa. They offered me a job, but I didn't go. Um, And then I quit my job at PLP um, because my father moved to Baltimore. I was dating my now wife, Miriam, um, and she lived in New York. So I quit my job and moved with my father to Baltimore because I figured a three-hour drive to New York to see Miriam was way better than a three-hour flight from Tampa to see her. Plus, I could see her every weekend. She could come to me. So I quit my job. So now I'm in Baltimore. I can't get into radio. I'm working at a Caldor. I'm totally bummed. I'm in love, but I'm totally bummed. You know, I'm with, with, she's now my wife. So it's 30, God, four years later, we're still together. Congratulations. So it was, yeah, the fact that she hasn't killed me is actually rather remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) Don't, don't congratulate me. Congratulate her because (laughs) look, you know me There is a special, well, I'll be a tour guide in hell. There's a special place in heaven for her because I, listen, I know me. I should have killed me a few times, but I guarantee you my wife should have killed me. But so I'm in, I'm in Baltimore. I'm with my dad, you know, and I'm just like, I hate this. I can't crack into WBAL or anything. And I got offered by, you know, the people who used to own my radio station, had a TV to come back and produce a daily two hour talk show. And I was like, you know, they offered me seventeen thousand okay. dollars, and I was like, I can't. Can, can, how about seventeen five? Right. And they said, okay, seventeen five. Like, yes. I was like, yep, it was the greatest thing in the world. So I put, you know, everything I owned in a U-Haul, and I drove back to Florida. And a few months later, Miriam, you know, moved down with me, and we got married, and blah 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 blah. But now I'm in 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 TV. So it's a music video television station, Channel 32 at the time, with a daily two-hour live talk show done by a former radio talk show host at the time named Richard Shanks. Really? So almost like an MTV type? It was an MTV, and it was because it was so expensive to get syndicated programming that music was free. And MTV was, you're talking about 1986, so it's kind of MTV's in its infancy. This was a local thing with local jocks but they needed some kind of a public service um, program. And since they knew the radio people and they were radio people from talk, I mean, D- Dan Johnson um, and his wife, Joe, put talk into Tampa with, with, with WPLP. So they created this two-hour show and they brought me in to produce it. And so I was there for a year until Richard Shanks, and you can Google this because it's out there, mooned our audience. Get out. Okay, so <laughs> listen, I don't. you don't make this stuff up. <laughs> Okay. So, and this is, God, this is, this is my life. Ken Charles, this is your life. So there's a kid uh, that goes to local public school who gets suspended for like a week or two weeks or whatever it was for mooning another kid on the bus stop. Okay. So, and this is, by the way, before they did the mooning thing on the TV show St. Elsewhere. Okay. So we proceeded, we didn't copy them, we proceeded you're, this.
1: Got it, you're visionaries, okay. mooning Absolutely. visionaries.
0: We, yes, when it comes to a butt on your cornflakes <laughs> on TV, I am one of the pioneers, you know? I'm not the pioneer, but I am. I was right. there, you know? I'm, I'm the Buzz Aldrin of, of butts on TV. You know, your Neil Armstrong was a guy named Richard Shank. So Richard wants to, you know, take up this kid's cause and show that mooning isn't a big deal. So we now go to Dan and Joe, the owners of the radio station or TV station, and have this whole conversation about what he wants to do. And you know, God, God love him. Go show me. So Richard, in you know, the office moons. And, and Joe sitting there going, no, no, I can see your, no, no, your pants have to be, and we're literally like, I'm like, like directing the yes. mooning. And I'm like, no! <laughs> we're in the Bible belt! No oh, one wants God. to see your butt! Right. No! Oh, Don't do this! <laughs> but, you know, and again, you know, being the good guy, fought the good fight, I got overruled, we're gonna do it. So the next day, Richard, you know, does his monologue, talks about this kid, comes out from behind his desk, Takes off his pants and wounds our audience. Unbelievable! Okay, so we, Li- live television, live television. We made um, USA Today. <laughs> we made you know all the local papers. In fact, the Joan Rivers show was still on the air at the time. They were talking to Richard. Um, through, well, to me through Richard, they were going to fly us in and be guests on the show. Oh my gosh! But they canceled the show right around then. Oh man! But unfortunately, I. Proved right, and all of our sponsors pulled off the show. Well, no sponsors, no need for a show, and so they fired us and canceled the show. So, even though you were against it, you still lost your gig. Well, I'm the producer of a show that doesn't exist. Oh, man. You know, I'm not a VJ, I'm not a TV guy. And so, I mean, it's not like they wanted to, but, you know, they kind of had to. They were in this really awkward position where it's a startup television station. It's less than a year, you know, it's a year, it's more than a year, I'm like a year and a half old. You know, they're trying to fight as hard as they can to really keep it going and do all of this stuff. And now you've got, you know, the mooning talk guy um, who showed his butt to America in their (laughs) cornflakes. And nobody's going to put their money on this station as long as we're there. So unfortunately, we are on the beach. So on the beach and how I got to, to, uh, you know, WWNZ was somebody who I knew from WPLP, became the general manager, and basically I stalked him for a while until he hired me for my first gig as a program director.
1: Your persistence paying off again.
0: Um, Either that or he just wanted me to shut up and stop calling him. (laughs) Was there something outside
1: of not mooning your audience that you were able to apply, that you learned in television and
0: apply to radio? Um, Yeah, TV sucked. (laughs) You know, if you didn't have a picture, you couldn't do it. If somebody wasn't in your studio, you couldn't do it. It made me really realize that radio is immediate. Radio is, you don't wait for anything. You get somebody on a phone, whether it's a reporter at a live shot, it's a guest from the middle of the giant news story, whatever it is, and you put them on the air and you move and nothing gets in your way. We didn't have to wait for the six o'clock news. We didn't have to wait to get a camera crew over there. A guy and a phone and boom, or a woman in a phone and boom, you're on the air with whatever that story is. That immediacy um, is, it was just, it, it was an aphrodisiac. It was just so cool that it really showed me that my path and direction, no TV, radio. Radio is the space. So
1: now you land this gig. I mean, you incredibly excited at this point, your first program director gig in in Orlando. I mean, it's a good size market. Yeah,
0: I mean, it, it, it was a great radio station. It was a good market. We had, you know, good talent. It was, it was a really cool thing. Thing was, I'm a first-time program director. Sure. So I really didn't know what I didn't know. I was a terrible manager, um, you know, and so I would ask somebody to do whatever that thing was, and I could hear what I wanted in my head, but I sucked at describing it to them. So when they came back to me and it wasn't the thing that I heard, I'd get frustrated and go do it myself. Well, A, that's no way to manage people. Right. B, that's no way to build trust in your team and yourself. And C, I really learned a valuable lesson that management is achieving your goals through other people. So I sucked as a first-time program director. I learned a lot, but I sucked. You know, And, and, and I wish I could go back and redo that with what I know now Um, Because it would be a really different situation. Sure, but you know you kind of gotta screw up, and you gotta make those mistakes. Um, And the key is just don't make them again.
1: How long were you in that gig?
0: Four years. Four
1: years. Did you end up getting blown out? Or oh yeah, oh you did.
0: Oh yeah, they well you know and and some of it was but I mean they gave the FM guy the radio station. Okay, Um, and that radio station you know became. you know, real talk in Orlando with Jim Phillips and Howard Stern. And so it morphed into an FM talk station. um, And they eventually blew that program director out too. And it completely changed. But, you know, they cut program directors and I was the one they cut.
1: Your trajectory though, you end up moving up in markets because you end up in Atlanta from there.
0: Well, I, I ended up in, actually, I ended up in Houston. Oh, Houston. I'm yeah. sorry. I've got so, it out of
1: order. So you went from Houston to Atlanta.
0: Yeah, I went to Houston. So it's it's a really so I went to Houston, but not as a program director. Okay. You know, I kind of was on an FM talk station overnight and so they moved me around a little bit. And then that during Hurricane um whatchamacallit? Andrew, you know, that that was the death knell for the station. They were gonna kill it. You know, because people forget, Andrew, you know, hit Florida, but when it came through Florida, went into the Gulf of Mexico. And so it looked like it might come to Houston. So they left us on. And then when it turned and hit Louisiana, they fired us all. No way. Absolutely. It went back to music. <laughs> all right. It's so ruthless. But here, here's a great story from that. So I'm doing mornings at the time that they're making the transition. And Rob Milford, who's a really great news guy, who's I think in Pensacola now, is the news guy for the show. And he finds out they're got to change format. And as soon as my show's over at nine o'clock, I'm getting whacked. Everybody else is getting whacked. We're done. So at 8.30, I tossed to the news, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's Rob with the news. And Rob goes, and I quote, I don't feel like it. Get back with me later. (laughs) Okay. Now I'm on the air. My news guy just said, I don't feel like it. I, you know, get back with me later. I'm like, holy what's going on here? And so, you know, I go, okay, let's take a break, hit the break. I go flying into the room. He goes, dude, go look in that production room. There's a guy with a whole bunch of CDs and stuff. They're changing format. They just fired me. When you get off the air at nine o'clock, they're going to fire you. Everybody else is getting fired today. They're going to music. So I go back in my studio. I'm like, what do I do? So I basically said like four more words said, we're going to another break. I hit the break got up, walked into that production room and said, you know what, dude, don't wait till nine. Just go in now and play some music. And I walked (laughs) off the air. He walked in and played music. I walked into the market manager's office and got shot. So now I'm in Houston, I'm unemployed. And you know somebody that I met from that radio station went back to work at KTRH. And she helped me get a gig at KTRH's newsroom. And so I went in as a reporter and an editor. So, you know, I I reported three days a week and was an editor on Saturdays and Sundays and really learned the news business from Joe Isbrand, guy named uh, Joe Householder, Sean Calthard. I mean, it was a remarkable, amazing newsroom with amazing people. And there's no way they should have hired me. I mean, I really wasn't a great editor or a reporter, but they also knew my programming background and they kind of brought me in for that, but didn't have a job. So I had to do all of that. And then after about a year, they changed the job and made me the executive news producer. So now I was working with talent, kind of coaching them, working on special shows like the 25th anniversary of Apollo 11, Apollo 13. Um, I was doing a lot of my own stuff. I was booking interviews and guests and working on the showbiz side. And after a number of years in 1995, that got me back into programming with um, New City in Syracuse at WSYR and WHEN. So, at this
1: point, you've board-opted, uh-huh. you've produced, uh-huh. you've been on air, you've produced television, you've done uh, on air, uh, both news on air and hosted your own show, okay. and you've been a reporter. Yes. I mean, you really, and production.
0: And and production, and I've been an editor, and I was an assignments editor, so I've, I've got to really now... Really diverse background. That's
1: incredible. I mean, you've, but
0: but but it's awesome. Yeah. And the reason it is is like, how do you coach somebody to do something if you've never done what they did? It's an excellent point. You know, DoorDash, um, which is the company that
1: brings food to your uh, to your door, uh, but they make every new hire, regardless of their position, even if it's they're the CFO, actually deliver food for a month or two, so they know exactly what it's like to be a driver and delivering food, picking it up from restaurants and so forth.
0: It's smart. We're about to do something at our radio. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I don't. You know, we're doing something where everybody in the radio station is going to have an opportunity to shadow different people in different departments, whether it's sales, IT, news, programming, promotions, whatever, not only to to help people get excited and grow and see other opportunities out there, but also for some of that to give people an opportunity to really see just how hard everybody works, just how unique and different and the, the skills and the different jobs are. And I really think not only from a morale standpoint, but from an opportunity standpoint, it's going to show just really, really cool results.
1: Comple- completely agree with that. I try to do the same here, and I don't do it as well as I, as I should. But not only does it, I think, give you good results, but it also gives you a sense of appreciation for your coworkers and what they do.
0: Absolutely. And yeah. it will also bring people who may never meet somebody in sales or promotions or sure. IT or whatever, the opportunity to meet people in that you know, um, department, which, again, builds a culture and brings people yeah. together. But I've been lucky because now to this point, I've done all of this stuff because of my oppor- you know they weren't going to hire me a- in Syracuse. It, it, you know yeah, so how do you get to Syracuse? So the, the job opened first as program director, but I really couldn't afford to take that job, and we kind of kept in touch, but then they needed a program director and a news director. Well, because of my programming background and my news background, Joel Domonico, the market manager, thought I was the right guy to fill both of those roles. And Dick Ferguson, who was the head of New City at the time, basically said one person can't do the job. And Joel went to bat for me and said, you don't understand, I have the right person to be program and news director, let me do it. And again, a, a management, Joel or, or Dick said, okay. And so Joel hired me. So now I'm program and news director of WSYR. Then we acquired WHN, which was all sports, and I ran the two radio stations. But I'm now program and news director. And not just in title, I was involved in the day-to-day operation of the news plus programming those two radio stations. That
1: is, that's a gigantic gig. But now you've got this foundation of what you picked up in Orlando and mm-hmm. uh, everything along the way. So you felt, did you feel confident and equipped at that point?
0: Um, a heck of a lot more than I did in Orlando, that's yeah. for sure. And so there was an opportunity to be program director at WGST in Atlanta with j And I met with Gabe Hobbs, and again, it was kind of a money thing, but they needed, you know, Gabe's had come to Atlanta to kind of fix the station and run it, but very quickly became the head of spoken word for J-Core and then for Clear Channel when the two companies merged. He didn't have time to do all of that. So he knew he needed to change program director, news director, but they really didn't have the budget for two separate bodies because he ate some of that budget for himself because he had to sit on the books. So they needed somebody to do both jobs. Well, here's a guy doing both jobs. I got on the radar. Um, ap- absolutely, accidentally, I actually ap- applied for um, the job at WTAM, which was, w- what was it, WWW, wwe what was it WWE,
1: i believe so Or
0: it was www whatever the hell it was that became wta right and of all kevin Matheny ended up getting that job but it wow. got me into jcore um and so now i'm on their radar so when atlanta opened up and they needed somebody to do both jobs here i am doing both jobs with the experience of both that got me to atlanta I was going to
1: ask you a little bit later on, but I'll ask you now because you're absolutely a news guy and your background and your education on politics and so forth are unbelievable. And it's all luck. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's, it's luck, but you're also, I've studied your ass off, but you're also a sports guy. And you and I have gone to some games before yeah. and you've gotten to run sports stations throughout your career. Have you ever thought about going down the sports path or it, you've always really, news has been your primary?
0: You know, I'd like to say there was thought in any of this, <laughs> you know, you know, I just kind of followed the opportunities and where the opportunities took me. So you're right. I've run, you know, I, was, I ran the, the Atlanta Falcons flag when they went to the first um, Super Bowl. I ran um, the Miami Heat flag. I ran the Astros flag right. when they went to their first World Series. Two thousand five. Yep. I ran. I. I you know. I, I ran Syracuse football and basketball network up when I was up in Syracuse. So I've been around sports and sports stations, and I flipped sports stations my whole life. Um, but I don't. I mean, I guess if the right opportunity happened, you know, I, I might. But news and news talk is just. Sports, I always joke that news and news talk was my job, sports was my hobby. I get it. And so when I when I had those opportunities, like in Houston, I had a news station, a talk station, and a classic hit station that we made a sports station.
1: You're like, you know? you're like Bo Jackson, man. You can play both. He uh, played both football and baseball, and uh, you can do both as well.
0: I mean, look, a program director is a program director, you know? Knowing how to take your brand and image it and position it, coaching talent, you know, PPM fundamentals or whatever it is, whether it's music or spoken word, there's a lot of similarities. No, there are definitely differences. I mean, I'm not the guy to tell you you're playing, you know, Aria Grande too much or not. Right. But when it comes to coaching talent, when it comes to brand identity, when it comes to positioning, when it comes to social media, a format's a format. You know, radio stations are radio yeah. station. bodies are bodies, people are people. So there's a lot of similarities, but my career has just kind of always yeah. taken me down this road.
1: It's an interesting argument. And I agree mostly. I believe in the spoken word formats. Those are more difficult. I've been on the music side, as you know, and I'm not discounting programming music radio. It takes certainly a tremendous amount of work and you have to be on top of it, but you get to rely on most of your on-air product being produced by major, major music stars. You've got to produce on the, certainly most of the time, on the, with the exception of the actual games, you're having to produce almost all the content on your sports station, and certainly on your news station,
0: you are producing everything. I mean, listen, there's a definitely a different skill set but a smart program director can do a lot of things no matter what the format. You know, you were a good program director, dude. If, if you got your hands on a news station, maybe the content and other things weren't necessarily be what you're most comfortable with, but you've got news directors and editors and people around you who's that expertise. True. But the sound of the radio station, right. the brand identity, the positioning of the radio station, how to execute all of that in a cohesive entertaining you know f- you know fundamentally sound f- with, with good flow and good you know all of that stuff you could do that tomorrow you know well, you're I, a program director
1: that's not nice either to say i'm not i'm not so sure but i appreciate
0: that program directors yeah. a program director right. you know it just happens my area of expertise is news yeah. and talk and you're right we do create the content and because i'm a dork and i'm into the news and i've got all the different apps and I watch way too much news for my own good. And, you know, I read voraciously, you know, all of that stuff still. Um, I, I, I'm immersed in, in creating my own content. But again, I don't do it by myself. You know, I've got my news director, Julie Chin. I've got great editors. I've got really, really smart producers. I've got amazing reporters. So it's not like I'm sitting in an island going, sure. okay, this is what you've got to do. I mean, look, I'm sitting here with you for the last 18 hours talking about this. <laughs> you know, KX is going on and I yeah. have complete faith. We're covering the right things. We're doing it well. We're executing it flawlessly. Our reporters are doing what they're supposed to do. Julie's leading that team. Greg, who's the editor right now. David, who's the producer. Mike and Karen, who are on the air, are all just doing, you know, what they're supposed to do.
1: speaks to your leadership. uh is, uh, I've been taught, and it's one of the hardest things to do because your ego gets involved, but if you're doing a phenomenal job running a business, which you're ultimately doing, you're running a very, you know, uh, expen- or a, a, a very important business that makes a lot of money and entertains a lot of people, provides news to a lot of people, that you should be able to walk away from it and it should run without it missing a beat. And that is hard to do, but if you can do that, it actually shows that you're a phenomenal leader and you've done a great job of surrounding yourself with fantastic staff.
0: Well, you know, in, one of the things I'm most proud of in KNX is we've made a lot of changes, but most of the staff that I inherited are still there.
1: That's amazing.
0: You know, which just told me we had great people. They just needed a better plan. right. You know, as opposed to, you know, there have been plenty of radio stations that I've been involved in as an ops manager or other things where we had to make changes to the entire staff because it was a bad radio station and they hired bad people. That's not the case at KNX. You know, much of the staff there now is the same staff that I inherited. Some people have retired along the way and other things. And I'm really proud of that, that we've been able to do what we've been able to do with the team that's been there. I mean, I got people who've been in that newsroom almost 40 years.
1: It takes a self-awareness on your part. I think a lot of people would have gone in and go, I want my own people and would have cleaned house.
0: Yeah. But you know, I mean, and maybe we would have needed to do that, but we didn't. And you know, I've moved around a lot, you know, look, my, my goofy career is, you know, Tampa, Orlando, Houston, Syracuse, Atlanta, Houston, Miami, a goofy stint in Sacramento, back to Miami, um, and then Los Angeles, along the way, national responsibilities with iHeartMedia. And I've learned a lot in all of those moves. And one of the things I've learned is in a lot of cases, it's not bad people. It's bad plan or bad management. And so when you come in, the first thing I always do is sit down with everybody one-on-one and get to know who's playing and who can't play. And not only ask them hard questions, but let me ask, or let them ask me hard questions. Yeah. You know, and kind of get a feel for who's there and then give them a chance as opposed to walking in with these preconceived notions that, oh, everybody sucks, you got to move. No, because what you'll find in a lot of cases, there's a lot of really, really, really good talent out there that have been mismanaged, miscoached, miscast. I mean, how many times have you seen, you know, there was a station I worked with with iHeart and the ratings were bad. And I listened to the radio station. Now I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but basically the afternoon guy should have been the morning guy and the morning guy should have been the afternoon guy. Mm-hmm. And so listening to the station for a number of hours and I'm getting a feel for it. I'm like, it's not a bad radio station. The program director is not a bad guy because this person was one of the people on the air. They're just in the wrong places. So we flipped them. Guess what? The ratings went up. Interesting. You know, not yeah. bad talent, Not bad people, they were just miscast. And you'll find that in a lot of places where you go, that people aren't bad. They don't have a lack of talent. They don't have a lack of ability. Sometimes they're just put in a position that they shouldn't be put in. Somebody told me a long time ago, if you want to be a really good manager, go from the players to the plays and not the reverse. And you know, there's a lot of managers go in and they have their plan. And they go in and say, here's my plan. And, you know, unfortunately, they only need one running back and they have four running backs, so three people get cut. Right. As opposed to going in and going, wow, I got three amazing running backs or four amazing running backs. How do I build an offense around these four guys? You know, because they're amazing at what they do. It's a great piece of advice. You know, and, and and so I've really believed that. And so, look, I, I've never gone into a building without having a plan and an idea and thoughts about what I wanted to do. But at the end of the day, go from the players to the plays and learn who your staff is, learn their strengths and their weaknesses, and put them in a position where they can maximize their strengths and minimize their weaknesses. And if you do that, you'll win. And that was kind of my strategy with K and X is learn my team, figure out who could do what and then put them hopefully if they were good. And it turns out that some of them were just a lot of them were great. put them in positions. Where they could do their best work and the results speak for themselves. J-Core,
1: what was that like in the late 90s?
0: It was great. Listen, you know, unfortunately, I got kind of into J-Core at the end, you know, so I missed, you know, launching the Power Pig. And I mean, I know about all of that stuff and I know people involved in it, Um, but J-Core was great. You know, it was a program director's company. They really respected the product and content and pushed you to do just amazing things. Um, the marriage with iHeart was kind of, we looked at it as good because, you know, the programming guys and the money guys got together and made one complete great business. Um, and it was, you know, J-Core was great. I, I, I wanted to work for them for a long time, but getting to work with Randy Michaels and Gabe Hobbs and Mark Chase, it was great. Did Randy ever get into your grill? Um Randy gets in everybody's grill. You know, the problem with Randy, when I got to him, Randy you know, had his own plane, would fly over your market, and then call you because he could listen to your station while he was flying over your market and just rip you about stuff. So I, I was at GST maybe a month. right? And my phone rings, and I pick it up, and it's Randy. And oh he's in God. his plane flying over, and he's like, so is it your policy to not have your talk show host say the call letters of the radio station? <laughs> And I'm like I'm like, what? And he goes, Well, I've been I've been listening to your radio station and nobody's saying the call letters. I was like, dude, I've been here less than a month. I just finally moved here. I got so many things to fix on this radio station. The Kimmer saying WGST is not the highest thing on my list. Take a pill. Fly back over in two months. And if you do that and we're not executing, you can, you know, fly your plane into my building, whatever it is. Just
1: I take some hoods, and and he,
0: you know, listen. Randy was awesome, and and so Randy said, "Okay," hung up, and you know, probably about five or six weeks later. So I haven't heard from Randy again. I get like a couple of emails from listeners yelling at me that we say our call letters too much. (laughs) I took all of them and sent them to Randy. Oh my god! I was like, "Is this good enough now?" And he's like, "I'm glad you listened." You know, and hilarious.
1: So, so he had a good sense of humor. He would take you could dish him shit and he would oh, take uh, it. Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean, listen, Randy's a talk show host, you know, who grew up with entertaining personality radio and he really 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 respected personalities. Both in mad. I mean, look at the people he surrounded him with. Kevin, sure. You know, Chase, Gabe Hobbs. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, the two
1: the two of know, us sound horrible, but I know,
0: anyway. right? It, it it we're we're at Cedar Sinai right now. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 You know, no, this is not the coronavirus hour that you're listening to. <laughs> but yeah, Randy, there are a lot of people who can tell a lot of amazing stories about Randy like that. So how long you're in? Actually,
1: I know you're in Atlanta for three years. Good time.
0: We really liked Atlanta. Atlanta it was, was fun. Market. It's it's a great market. Weather was great. You know, it's kind of after three years in Syracuse, it was like, I'm never going north of Atlanta ever again. Right, right. You know, of course we had an ice storm and, and other things while I was there. Atlanta it was a great market. We turned GST around you know they had made it planet this thing called planet radio absolutely tanked this radio station um, and despite some things, we took it from you know less than a two share twenty five fifty four to a four and a half share twenty five fifty
1: four
0: um, and it stayed there even when they took my FM away from me um, and then I left and went to Houston and the station has never been over a one since
1: really. We'll get into that because I want to go back to how do you resurrect AM stations? Is it possible? But I want to get to that at the end. Let's go into so you end up in Houston, so you transfer from Atlanta to the, Houston,
0: the, correct? John Hogan um, and Gabe Hobbs moved me, and, and Brian Purdy brought me to you know back to KTRH. So where I worked in you know news, now I'm back as program director for KTRH, KPRC, and KBME. It's a gigantic gig. Um, it was a great gig. Yeah, you know, K- KTRH was the news station, KPRC was our talk station, and that one really needed to be resurrected.
1: So at this point, they saw what you did, did at GST, and they're like, "This is amazing," and they wanted you to basically come in and change Houston.
0: They, they wanted me to do that, and I wanted out of Atlanta because they took my FM away from me, and I was pissed. Uh, why did they take the FM away? Um, you know, look, it was it was, was two thousand, two thousand one, about the time of the dot com bubble, but Atlanta at the time was really, really under radioed okay and so you know they felt that they could make more money with two stations with two different formats than one station taking up two signals and uh-huh. and and so despite what we had done with it um and we were really in wsb's face you know sb I, i'm sure most sherry will tell you greg Mosheri, who is a great consultant and one of the smartest guys i've ever met will tell you we were a handful back then because we went after them with everything I possibly had. Um, but from a financial perspective, and you know, they weren't wrong. They could make more money with two than one. What they didn't foresee was the economy tanking because of the dot com bubble bursting. Um, the economics changed and unfortunately, you know, some other things happened and it, it didn't work. But it you get,
1: happens. You get to go to Houston, which yeah. is a heck of a consolation
0: prize. Listen, not only do I get to go to Houston, but you know, we're the flagship for the Rockets, we're the flagship for the Astros. I mean, it was a great gig with some again, great people.
1: You guys won the pennant in 2005
0: and you got a ring. I got a ring. You know, it's a loser's I, ring, but still, it's, I, I got a ring. It's a second place ring. It's a, bet. Listen, it's a ring that they didn't cheat for. There, <laughs> good point. You know, it's a non-cheater's good ring. And point. by the way, they're in the American League now. They were in the National League then. That's right. Um, and listen, I got a ring because we built an amazing relationship with the owner of the team. I'll never forget the first time I met Drayton McLean. The thing he said to me was, you say our name a hundred times a day. And that was kind of the thing, is one of the things I heard on the radio stations, despite being the Astros' flagship, nobody had any idea really the Astros were there. And I really, during Astros' season, ingrained the Astros into the fabric of the radio station and vice versa, and we did. We said the Astros' name 100 times a day. We locked out, you know, at the top of every hour, so there's 24. Every sportscast, so two times an hour, home of the Astros, and there were a bunch of promos and other things we said the Astros' name 100 times a day, every day throughout the season. And Drayton noticed that and, you know, had heard that we did that. And the first time I met him, that was the first thing he said to me. That's cool. And, you know, here's this, you know, very rich, amazing human being. And all we did was start talking about yeah. branding and the partnership and how important I thought the Astros were to us. And I really did. I, I didn't care if they were 162-0 or 0 and 162, we were the Astros flagship. There were a ton of people who were married to that team and loved that team. And if they were going to be on my radio station, they were going to take a, as big a personality as anybody else on the radio station.
1: I've always been on the outside looking in as far as the sports, sponsorship, or the sports licensing as it goes. But it seemed to me back in the day, there was more of a respect with the broadcaster and the team and vice versa. And I feel now it's become so much about rights fees. More than the relationship itself.
0: Um, you know, listen, if you look at great radio stations that have partnerships with teams, it regardless I mean, listen, rights fees are rights fees, you know, teams are a valuable commodity. There are all sorts of deals of all sorts of ilks all across the country with different companies, but it's the relationship with the team and the relationship with the team through the community that builds the brand. So, uh, you know, the smart program directors, if you look at our sports stations, if you look at our relationships with teams, if you look at our partnerships, those are true partnerships. You know, those are really—and they have to be. You know, at the end of the day, you're not just a carrier of a thing. It's a personality. It's a living, breathing entity that people are connected to on a really, really emotional level. And at the end of the day, if you're going to win in your radio station, no matter what the format is— It's not being a commodity. It's still, even on a news station, we still have to connect with our audience on an emotional level. And what's more emotional than a fan of a sports team? So I think the best relationships are still all emotional, all about the connection between the team, the community, and the radio station. At this
1: point, you're up to the regional VP of programming, two thousand three. So you're in Houston. You're kicking ass. The stations
0: are doing well. I, I, I mean, there were a lot of regional VPs. I was one of them.
1: So what was what other stations were you overseeing in that role?
0: Um, I was overseeing stations in San Antonio, Corpus Christi. Um, I was seeing stations in uh, New Orleans, Alexandria, um, Louisiana. So there were about forty-five or fifty radio stations, including the ones in Houston, that. I was, you know, responsible for. How does that change your day to day?
1: How were you able to manage all that?
0: You just do, right? I mean, you got good people. Um, I, you know, I, you just do. I mean, I, I don't know any other way to say it. I mean, we're in a business now where if you want to only do one thing, you're not going to be around very long. Right. I mean, I hate to be crass like that, but the best programmers, the best sellers can sell multiple radio stations. The best program directors have their hands in a bunch of different things, including social media. For us, radio.com, working with those teams. It's not just one team. So you know what? It was great prep for the, as radio evolved, being able to juggle lots of balls and do lots of things and not be married to just one thing.
1: Did you feel like your primary stations suffered at all?
0: No. No. No, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, that was my job. Right. And so they can't, Um, you know, so you have to make time for everything. So it was editorial calls in the morning, it was working with talent and talking to program directors and traveling and all of the other stuff. And you know what, it's not just me. I mean, look, look at any company, whether it's our company, lots of people are doing more than one radio station. You know, that's part of the business. And I don't know necessarily that's good or bad. It just, every business, I mean, look- your business, any business, people who can only do one thing, you know, are less of a commodity to the future of the business than people who know multiple yeah. things and can do multiple things and can juggle multiple things. It's crucial. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. I, I absolutely do. So you go back to Miami. I go. Well, you know, I, I go back to Miami. Miami, right. Miami was home. Um, my father um, was going through health things. Um, it just, it you know, it was the right time for Houston to say goodbye to me, and it was the right time for me to say goodbye to Houston. Was that tough to leave? Um, yeah, my wife, you know, had a lot of good friends there. We had spent you know eleven years between our two stints there. We really, really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, but it turned out to be totally the right thing for me, both from a career perspective and a personal perspective, because my brother, my sister, my mother, my father all lived in Florida. Um, and so, you know, we moved there in t- 2007. My dad passed in 2008. Uh, so nice I got to, to spend him. a lot more quality time with him. And then when he did die, I was there. Whereas if I were trying to, you know, if you believe in God, I guess it, he moves in mysterious ways. You know, if I were in Houston when I got that phone call, you got to get there there's a 50-50 shot if I could get there the next day. Right. From Miami, I was able to get in the car, drive to Tampa, and be there, spend the night in his hospital room, pretty much said everything I wanted to say about six times. And so when he passed the next day, I was there. Right. You know. So at the end of the day, it was hard, um, but it was personally the right thing. Um, and professionally, it absolutely was the right thing.
1: That was a, a mitzvah, correct?
0: Yeah. All right. Yeah. We'll go with that. Okay.
1: It was I'm Trying to throw a little bit of my, uh, my Yiddish at you. And
0: I, listen, I like Miami. You know, Florida's home. You know, I grew up in Florida. Um, you know, I'm the only Jew in the world that retired to Florida at 15 as opposed to 65. You know, so when we moved to Florida, Florida's home. So the opportunity to go back home, be close to my relatives, work at great brands, W I O D and W I N Z, um, working with great people, George Tulas, Rich McMullen, and all those guys. And that's how I really got to know Tom Pullman. You know oh. and, and, and you know, because Pullman was um in, in a regional position, and they moved Elvis Duran, so he was doing both New York and at that time Miami as they were expanding his show, and Tom spent a lot of time down there, and that's how I got to know Tom, and so Tom was very instrumental in helping grow my career um inside iHeart to finally the the national programming position. so again, you know, maybe it was hard. But I was in the right place at the right time. Tom and I learned each other. He respected me and gave me opportunities to continue to grow and evolve. So, you know, screw hard. It was great. Fill me in a little
1: bit on Tom Pullman. I've always been honestly very interested. I've met Tom a couple times, and technically he was like my boss boss years ago at uh, Clear Channel. But what I've always thought of him as really a music guy. And I know, I don't know why I keep on delineating between music and news, but for some reason I do, I guess because I'm on the music side of it. But did he have a lot of respect or does he have a lot of respect for uh, for news and talk radio? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Tom's one of the most brilliant program directors. Tom truly understands talent, how to coach talent, understands talent is not only in front of the mic, but behind the mic. So he treated his program directors, he treated his music directors, he treated you know the people around him like you would want and see him treat talent. I mean, just... An amazing experience, you know, to work with him and the people around him. It was, it was awesome. And how long were you in Miami? So I was in Miami from 2007 until 2015 with an 18 month stop in Sacramento. So how do you end up in Sacramento from there? I Dick cheney myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm, you know, working for the national format team. right? And so they gave me Sacramento and said, listen to the station, figure out what to do. Um, So I drew up this seven-page plan. I mean, KFPK was like top three radio station, 2554 consistently, started to fall. They put it on the FM dial. It kept falling. When I got involved, it was like 13th or 14th, 2554. And they said, we got to do something. So I created a plan. I mean, I went through, I listened, I met the people, Everybody kind of made a decision. We needed to find a new program director. So uh, there are a couple of people who I thought would be right, but they weren't either in their contracts ready to move or other you know things were in the way, so they couldn't move. And I don't know. I was getting kind of bored with Miami. The opportunity to fix an FM talker with Rush Limbaugh on it um, was a really just amazing opportunity for me. Sacramento is a beautiful city. And so I said- I'll do it. And they said, really? Talked to my wife. My wife said, sure. So I did it. And so I, I moved there. My wife was getting ready to move. But some things kind of happened where there, that I might end up in another market with the, with the same company. And so she never moved. So I was there for 14 months. Oh, by the way, within two books, we had it back from 13, 25, 54 to top three where it stayed for my entire time. Um, followed my seven-page plan. We did all of the things that I said. We again didn't have to fire the staff. The morning show, afternoon show. Nobody got to work with amazing people like Armstrong and Getty, and you know Dave Milner, who's you know big muckety muck with Cumulus yeah, now. Sure. Big um, fan of Dave and a number of people who are with the radio station. And I was still working on the national, the, the national format boy for you know iHeart, and it was great. But because Miriam didn't move, and I was there. It just kind of became a drag going back and forth, and so I asked the company, you know, could I go back to you know Miami? Found a replacement, and after like eighteen months, I went back to Miami. So you've,
1: in a lot of ways, were a a smoke jumper for Clear Channel slash iHeart. You would go in and fix some of their broken properties.
0: I listen. I made my whole career of being smart enough to know following a great program director was really, really bad. (laughs) You know, always go to something broken. And try not to follow the beloved guy. Yeah. You know, you don't want to fire, follow Bear Bryant. You want to follow the guy who followed Bear Bryant. You know? Great piece and, of advice. And so but, I've, I've been lucky. I made my career going to broken radio stations and rehabilitating them. But you've done it in a way that's very interesting to me. You've In a lot of ways, and you've
1: referenced it a couple times, you've kept the staff mostly. All, but they were cast wrong in different day parts or you, you made tweaks to the lineup, but you changed or but the lineup largely stayed the same.
0: I mean, look, there were some times where you had the wrong morning show or other things. But in most cases, I was able to go into the radio station and be blessed with amazing talent right. that just, you know what, bad plan, amazing talent. And that's, you know, look, again, that's not a skill, that's luck the skill part is like i said trying to follow people who are running broken radio stations that need fixing you know and while it is the it is a skill to go into a radio station that's doing well and not screw it up i don't believe it's a skill i have you know i'm i like to change and evolve and 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 you know mess with imaging and positioning and changing clocks and you know coaching talent on different things and, you know, evolving a radio station. That happens to be my skill. There are plenty of program directors who can go into great stations and keep them great and keep them evolving. My skill just has always been going into stations that were broken or needed something, um, having great staffs and just bringing a different perspective or plan and working with the team to, you know, evolve and change the radio station.
1: Tell me about KNX. How did that come to be?
0: Um, You know, so I'm on. You know, I wasn't attached to revenue when I went back to Miami, and so basically we parted friends with iHeart. So I'm on the beach, and they uh, listen. I was really lucky that they had let the program director go. Like the September. This is January 2015. They let the program director go in September of 2014, and hadn't filled the role. So now I'm on the beach. I'm looking for a gig, and Harvey Nagler, who at the time was president and GM of CBS News Radio, sure. said, Hey, man, KNX is still looking for a program director. You should call the market manager. So he made a call to the market manager, Dan Kearney. I called Dan Kearney, um, and we hit it off. And, you know, look, I was lucky. Dan worked in Atlanta when I was in Atlanta, so he knew some of my work from GST Dan worked for Cox in Miami when I was with iHeart in Miami, so he knew my work in Miami. So while he didn't know me, he knew my radio stations and a little bit about my reputation and what I had done, and we hit it off. We talked about the station where I thought it needed to go, challenges, the business, um, you know, and CBS really did their due diligence. I I talked to Chris Olivero and talked to Scott Herman, and they, I mean, they checked with people I hadn't talked to in years. You know, but they really checked me out and we just, it it worked out and they were willing to, you know, wait for me because there were just some, some reasons I couldn't take the job right away. And, you know, they offered me the gig and it was like, okay, do I really want to go back to California? It's K and X. It's all news. It's CBS. It's LA. Schmuck, go. You know,
1: what did it feel like when you got here and you'd officially taken the job when you arrived?
0: Um, Terrifying. I mean, look, you know, it's a big thing. And, you know, these are, you know, my whole career, well, I've worked a lot in news and, you know, news is a thing. I've been in news and news talk. And I knew they would look at me despite my background in in, in news and other things. I was a talk guy, I wasn't coming from a traditional news source. I was coming from the talk guys right. because regardless of my news background, that's how I was going to be perceived. And I knew that. So I had to come in and prove myself and win over a very, look. we're news people, we're jaded, we're cynical, you know? And and so I had to win them over and show them that, yeah, I was going to make some changes and we were going to do some things differently. But the most important thing was I respected the heritage of the brand I respected the brand and I respected the news that I wasn't going to come in and just, you know, we're going to be all talk or, you know, change those kinds of things. And so, you know, as much as they, you know, were trying to prove themselves to me and show me what they could do, I had to do the exact same thing with them, you know, because they, a lot of those guys had been there a long time. I'm the new guy. I need them to win. They don't need me to win. They've been there for a really long time. So, you know, I will not lie to you that despite the fact, you know, I'm very confident in what I do. It was terrifying. Moving 3,000 miles across the country to Los Angeles to CBS. I mean, it's CBS. Sure. It's an all-news radio station. It's a senior staff. It was terrifying, but it was also awesome.
1: Would you say this is the most competitive market you've ever been in?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, th- th- think about just Morning Drive. Sure. You know, you've got Ryan Seacrest. You've got, you know, Ellen K. KFI Bill Handel is a legend. You've got, you know, on the FM side, you know, you've got Kevin and Bean when I came in. You've, I mean, there are some of the biggest names and the biggest brands, and there are more signals here in L.A. than any other market in the country, even New York. So I, you know, absolutely. And they're all the competition, you know, Gary and Lisa on, on, on K-Earth been their heritage long time. I mean, you can't really name a top 20 radio station without a monster morning show.
1: The cluster that you guys are in right now is performing incredibly well. Jack, K-Earth, The Wave, obviously KNX. Um, How does it feel? Do you guys feel like you're winning inside? Is there a, a good vibe?
0: Yeah, there's, there's, listen, there's a great vibe. I love Dan Kearney. Dan did a great job. Um, the company made a decision and brought in a guy named Jeff Fetterman. Fed is just awesome. you know. Fed, Fed, Fed you know, will often tell you he's a programming guy, but he doesn't just talk that talk. He walks that walk, and he really respects it. The other thing is because when he left radio until he came back for this gig— He was in the dot-com or, or you know, in the startup world. So he really brings a totally different just mentality and vibe to innovation and a totally different vibe into building culture and a totally different vibe into, you know, how people fit in and how important it is to really, really, really respect your talent and your people. Um, So it's been great
1: always had a lot of respect for Jeff. He's got a lot of passion. He's enthusiastic. He's very pro radio, which is exciting.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, look, he, he's in, you know, the, the the startup world. He doesn't have to come back right. to radio. What? Why, why did he need radio? He needed radio because he loved radio. And at the end of the day, whether it's Tom Pullman, Dan Kearney, Purdy, working for people who love radio and it's in their blood is just the best thing in the world. And, you know, with Fed, he brings all of those things, but he loves radio.
1: Rush, we're fresh off the news that he's been unfortunately diagnosed with, uh, with with lung cancer. What happens? And I know obviously Rush isn't on your station, but what happens to the news format as a well, whole? The news talk format, I should say, as a whole. If Rush were to go away,
0: like I said, I'd rather be the guy who replaces the guy who replaces Bear Bryant. Right. Rush is absolutely the bear Bryant of talk. You know, there are stations that exist today solely because of Rush Limbaugh. He changed the business, he changed the world, some for the better, some for the worse. You can make all sorts of different arguments, but he really revolutionized talk in a lot of ways. Um, He was the first, and being the first, being that first guy up Everest, which is what he was. Um, he he's a incredible talent, you know. He 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 got the showbiz. I mean, it's not. I, I realize that people, you know, look at him and look at his politics and other things, but he also understands it's show business. You know? I
1: I agree completely.
0: And he's an entertainer. Yeah. Yes, he has his politics, and he says what he says on the air. And like I said, you can like him or not like him. But the things he did for spoken word radio are flat out undeniable. Um, look, we're all going to be gone. I don't care whether it's local talent, national talent. Everybody's going to be gone, whether it's because of health, retirement, personal reasons, whatever. Um, this business is going to be just fine. Um, and I don't say that with any disrespect to, to Rush yeah. Limbaugh because I have the utmost respect yeah for what he's done, what he's brought to the table. And I don't care who you are. When you're in anything for more than 30 years, you're doing something pretty damn incredible. And when you're the first at it and when you're a revolutionary because you've changed it. Sure. But you know what? At the end of the day, we're all going to be replaced. Everybody leaves and goes away. And so you know this business is still, whether it's news or news talk, is a business about personalities, and there are some very big personalities both on a local level and a national level, with you know Hannity, Beck, um, Mark Levin, and others. And so, do I want to see Rush leave? Absolutely not. Um, but we all knew this day was coming. I hope it's not because of his health. I hope it's his own decision, and he decides that you know what, it's time for me to sit on a beach, you know, and enjoy my life. Um, I, I can't predict that future, but, you know, I think he is, has 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 done so many amazing things. But I do think that this business, as long as it continues to evolve, you know, look, if you look at the Los Angeles market, less than 30% of the people, according to Nielsen, listen to AM radio, you know, and so we've got to continue evolve, you know, with radio.com with our social media channels, which making sure that the brand is everywhere our audience is. And so whether it's, you know, Rush Limbaugh and iHeart, whether it's radio.com, whether it's our company, whether it's a small mom and pop in, you know, Paducah, Kentucky, that evolution of your brand has to continue for us to be successful. And I really believe, you know, I jokingly say I need 10 more years out of this. Um, I hope, and I believe I'm going to get it, um, and I want to leave it better than um, it is. Will it all be AM radio? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you this. The brands, KFI, WLW, KNX, go through the list. Those are giant brands that mean something to a lot of people young and old, and they mean something to people in different ways. And so whether it's an app on the phone like Radio.com or... Whether it's you know in social media, on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the next thing that Bill Gates wakes up and wants to invent is or the Apple guys create, as long as our brands, whichever ones they are, are accessible in those places and continue to provide a product that is meaningful and has you know, benefits to the audience— these brands are going to be fine.
1: That's incredibly profound. A great example of that is obviously we know how hard print has been hit. But the New York Times, the Washington Post are actually thriving. and They've done an amazing job of changing to the digital landscape. It is all about the brand. The strongest will survive. Yep. I think the weaker's the, the weaker stations or the weaker brands will fail to exist or will certainly be very different than what they are today. But I agree. I think it will transcend. If I, I believe that medium will be long be around for a long time, but the strong brands will transcend whatever the medium is.
0: Absolutely, and, and it's been proven that in all sorts of different product categories. And you know, again, I, I don't care what your politics are. Think about what Rush has done for so many of the brands he is on. Sure. He you know, he has transcended them. He has transformed them. He has connected them in a unique way with their audiences. So, yes, will it be sad to see him go under any circumstance? Absolutely. Was it going to happen someday to all of us? Absolutely. Will the brands that have been built by him, through him, with him, in conjunction with him, Continue to thrive. I absolutely believe yes.
1: Would you say with the news cycle that I think we'd agree moves so much quicker today than it did, let's say, ten years ago? Has your job become that much harder?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's twenty four seven. You know, it's keeping up with a lot more things. It's making sure that your team is keeping up with a lot more things. It's being um, well versed in not just the medium of am radio fm radio radio but it's digital it's all of those different platforms the job has changed tremendously and the people who are still here and the people who have thrived and the people who have been successful small markets big markets have all had to do that and not just in spoken word in music too you know it's all about the brand Kevin and Bean are a brand. Gary and Lisa are a brand. Ryan Seacrest is a brand. KNX is a brand. They're all brands. And these brands, you know, have to be platform agnostic and have to be accessible and available everywhere. And, you know, through Radio.com and other things, that's how they are.
1: One of the things that I really respect about you is the specialty programming that you do. And we were talking about before we started recording that you're getting ready to do one on the coronavirus. And I don't think stations do enough of that. And I really, I know that you've done them on the the water crisis and you've done several others since you've been here. Fill me in a little bit on those and the passion behind
0: them. So we created a show called KNX In-Depth. And it's something that I really felt passionate about that, you know, look, KNX is a great news station. And so we cover the news, but, you know, in a lot of cases, because of the way the format is structured, we can provide the story but sometimes not the story behind the story. So we created KX In Depth, which runs every Monday through Friday at 1 o'clock and repeated at 8 o'clock so that we could get deeper into the big one, two, sometimes five stories of the day. And through that show, we've done all sorts of things from the 25th anniversary of the OJ trial. We've had Jim Comey. We've had Dan Aykroyd. We've had, I mean... Harvey Levin, after the the Kobe tragedy, talking about TMZ breaking the story that Kobe was in that helicopter, why he made those decisions. I mean, it's a show that gives us the ability to talk to the biggest names and the biggest people and the biggest newsmakers in a longer form format. So this Thursday, a week from today, um, today being what's today, whatever today is, the sixth, the seventh, next Thursday. We're going to do an hour on coronavirus because people are freaking out. You know, um, Charles Feldman, one of the hosts, went into, so he went out to grab a sandwich from the radio station, stopped into one of the drugstores near our radio station. There's a giant hole in um, one of the shelves in one of the aisles, and he asked what was there, and the guy said, oh, that's where we have the Purell and the Lysol and all of the surgical masks, and we're all sold out. We have none of them. So he went to the next drugstore. Same thing. He went to a third drugstore. Clearly, where we are, there's way too many (laughs) drugstores. But went to a third drugstore, same thing. They were all sold out. And so, you know, then you hear the city of Alhambra is talking about closing their schools. And you hear, you know, people all over the place are absolutely freaked out by that thing. So, in depth gives us the ability to not just cover the story, but to go in depth. So, next week, we're going to do an entire hour where we're going to answer absolutely every question. We've got an epidemiologist, we've got a family physician, because we want to know, you know, not only from the bigger picture, you know, why China? What is this disease? How can I get it? Why are people dying? What's going on? We also want to talk to a family physician and get the side of what are people asking you? What are you telling um, your patients? And also to me, really, really importantly, I want to find out the kind of information that the normal family physician is getting from the federal government, from the CDC. What are they learning and knowing so that they can dispel some of this fear? So we're going to take this hour to answer as many of those questions as we can. So we've got at least those two, and then we're going to look at all the different angles. So there'll probably be six or seven different people with those two people being our anchors as part of this That's show. Incredible. Can you get this as a podcast or as absolutely uh, okay? So it so not only does it air at one o'clock and then we repeat it at eight o'clock, but you can get it on radio.com as a podcast. Um, and not only that, you know, here's the shameless plug, but hey, you know, what the heck? There's a thing now that radio.com has called rewind. So let's say you missed it at one, you don't want to listen to the podcast and you don't want to wait till eight o'clock you can go back twenty four hours and listen to anything that happened on KNX and a number of our That's radio cool. stations. I think I
1: read about that a few weeks ago yeah. on the trades. That's incredible. So you can go back, listen to your favorite morning show. Absolutely,
0: you, your favorite morning show. You, if you you know, look, we do traffic every ten minutes on the fives. If you tune in on an eight. You know, I don't want to tell you this. I want you to listen to the next five. <laughs> but if you want to go back, you know, three minutes, you can hear that traffic report. That's a great feature. You know, so if you don't want to wait for the podcast to get put up an hour after the show or whatever, you don't want to wait till eight o'clock. You can just rewind and hear the show. So it's available. Again, you know, we talked about being available where our audience is and when they want you. There's one more example. So yeah, we absolutely yeah. podcast the show. We'll make
1: sure and we'll put the link up uh, on the in the show notes. One last question for you. Sure. One story that just surmises your radio experience. Okay.
0: So it could be, there's God, what it's could, could be having lunch with George HW Bush. You had lunch with George Bush. Yeah. He was awesome. Well, through the Astros, you know, he was a huge Astros fan. Didn't they own part of the team? Um, Oh, they own part of the Rangers. George W. owned part of the Rangers. H. W. is just a giant fan, um, but I got to meet him a bunch of times through that. That's and, cool. And so he was—he was the speaker at a lunch thing. We, but that's not it. Um, you know. All right. So I took Mikhail Gorbachev, the former <laughs> premier of the Soviet Union, to the only professional NFL game he has ever seen in person in his life. Get how did that come to be? Um, okay. So let's talk about pushy. So, okay. A uh, guy named Lance Locker and I uh-huh. found out he was coming to Atlanta, um, to do some things with his charity. He's got a national uh, or international environmental charity and he was coming into Atlanta. So somehow we kind of weaseled our way. So we were going to be the official greeters of Mikhail Gorbachev when he came to America through our radio station. So so let so no so Lance and I drive out to Hartsfield Airport. Wait, we, who do you call to line this up? Uh, it, listen, it's been a long time. Okay, um, we work through his charity. All right, you work through his charity, you know, and they're like, okay. "Yes, you can do this." Okay? okay, so we we drive out, and by the way, so I I have his first autobiography. So I take it with me in another book about him because I'm getting his autograph and we're not thinking about football or anything. Sure. And they take us to this private terminal over by the terminal E or whatever the hell it was at Hartsfield Airport. And we wait and we wait. Sure enough, he walks in with this little bald dude with a mustache who's his interpreter and is in every picture you ever see of him, guys with his charities, and they come up and just start talking. And we start talking and I and I ask for the autograph. And so this is on- Does he have like a security detail with him? He's got two giant Brezhnev-looking dudes (laughs) who, by the way, would not show us their Uzis. (laughs) And I'll get get to where the Uzis came in because I wanted to see them. They wouldn't show us anything. But these two, dude, they were giant. I mean, I'm a big boy. I look like a eight-year-old child standing next. They were giant. Um, And so they're with them and we're talking. And so we're the flagship of the Falcons and there was a game on Sunday. So this is the Friday before, yeah, it's the Friday before the game. Okay. And so this is in 2000. So it's before 2001. Is it 99? Maybe it's 99. I think it could be 99. It was 99 or 2000. Um, And so we basically just, I asked, it's like, you know, Mr. President, um, the, we're the flagship of the Falcons the Falcons play this Sunday we know you're still going to be in the United States would you be our guest at the game get out so you would
1: only line up at this point the meet and greet we're at just, the airport
0: We're just the two idiots me and Lance and we're just <laughs> meeting them but we're like you know what the hell so you okay? just throw the invite out we throw the invite and look He's a professional politician. The people around him are professionals. So we get the, you know, well, thank you very much. We don't know the president's schedule. You know, we'll look at it. So we figure, you know, we're getting the complete, total professional sure. blow-off. Had to ask it. We just had the coolest moment of our lives, spending 20 minutes talking with the former second most powerful man in the world. <laughs> I got my autographs of my book. I'm really happy. Yeah. Lance is really happy. We go back to the radio station. We're telling our market manager the story. All of a sudden, my phone rings. I pick up the phone. It's his people saying, the president would love to be your guest. Get out. We're like, uh, 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 uh. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what do you, like, like, seriously, what do we do now? Right. And so we go, okay, great. Um, Let me work out the details. What does he need? And it's like, nobody can be in the suite other than, you know, Me, Lance, our market manager, um, we have to coordinate with the Georgia Dome. And so we have to do all of this. So it's like, okay, give us 10 minutes. We'll call you back. We'll make sure we have the arrangements. So now we call the Falcons, okay? And it's like, okay, we need your help. We just invited Mikhail Gorbachev to the game. (laughs) He's coming. So the first thing we had to do is, you know, look, like every every group of people, we had clients in our suite. We needed a suite because we couldn't just tell our clients, right. you know, our clients are like all excited, maybe the only game. They spend, you know, hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars with our station. So the Falcons got us another suite for our clients. Then it's like, what do we do with security? How do we get them? So they describe where he has to come in, what we do. They gave me two police officers. So it's like now we call him back. It's like, okay, here's what we need you to do. Great, we'll be there at 1230. What a production. Okay, so now we're set. We've got two cops. We've got his people. We now know who's coming for him. His daughter, Raisa, his wife, had died within the last few months. His daughter, a couple of charity people are coming. Um, the, the, the bald dude with the mustache, the two Brezhnev guys, <laughs> they're all now coming. So, okay, now it's Sunday. We've arranged all this stuff. I'm in like, no, this really isn't going to happen. This is never going to happen. There's no way... But you know what? Screw it. So I'm driving to the stadium and I'm like, you know what? I got to do this. He had just come out with a brand new book. So I went to the local Barnes and Nobles and I bought like 15, every copy they had of this book I bought was like 15 copies. So now I've got the books. I take them to the suite. They're They're about 10 minutes out. My phone rings. It's them. Okay. We're almost there. So now I go down, you know, I find the cops. I go down from our suite. Meet them at the loading dock where there's security and everything, you know, because he's not coming in, you know, in parking lot A through the (laughs) turnstile, (laughs) you know. So now the two limos drive up, and here we are with the president or a former president of the Soviet Union, his daughter, all of these people. We go up the elevator, and now we're walking through the suite level. So you've seen the picture. He's in a Land's End jacket, he's in kind of comfortable shoes, he's wearing a, a normal shirt and pants. He looks like my grandfather but we're walking through with the giant Brezhnev looking dudes and, a, and cops in front of us and this entourage of people. And now you hear people Twittering. God, <laughs> wow, he looks familiar. And we go into our suite. So now we're in our suite. Um, and his daughter lights up a cigarette. Oh my God. Well, Even in 19, but I'm not going to be the person who tells the daughter of the former second most powerful man right. in the world. You have to put the cigarette yeah. out. So she's smoking her cigarette. <laughs> you know, the Brezhnev dudes are by the door. um, He's sitting in a chair and we're watching the game. And there's, so our, our market manager is a guy named Pat McDonald. And yeah. at the time, Pat was like 500. I mean, Pat was gigantic. You know, Pat's like six, eight, four or 500 pounds. And we have the funniest picture um, of Mikhail Gorbachev high-fiving Pat as the Atlanta Falcons. And by the way, it was against the Saints scored a touchdown. So no we're watching way. the game. So I figured, screw it. Let me push my luck a little more. And we asked him like in the middle of the second quarter, would you come on our halftime show? He says, yes, get out, you know? So now, and you've seen the picture of him in our booth. Yeah. Okay. Those By the way, the I'd love,
1: can we put that up Absolutely. on the show? Okay. We'll put that in the show notes okay. as well.
0: So now we're walking through the press area to get to our press box with the president, two giant Brezhnev dudes, the bald guy. And we go into our booth and it's uh, Jeff Hollinger and Jeff Van Note. Jeff played for like 16 years with the Falcons. Hollinger is our play-by-play guy. It's like, hey, I told you, here's Mikhail Gorbachev. And so Gorbachev and his... Sit down, and they start interviewing Mikhail Gorbachev. So there's Mikhail Gorbachev now on my halftime show. Then we go back to the suite and again. I mean, you hear all these people through through an interpreter, uh, through the interpreter. Okay. Now now we go back to the suite, and he stayed through the end of the third quarter. I took him back downstairs. And they, they drove off into the he sunset. Did have a hot dog? Um, well, we had you know food and stuff. Catered right, absolutely. But he he dug the whole experience. Oh yeah, he had popcorn. So the Brezhnev guys, they're by the door. So right. you know we're talking to Brett you know Gorbachev. We're talking to his daughter, all sorts of people. I'm really fascinated by these two guys. All <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, And by the way, they were fascinated by the cheerleaders. (laughs) I'm sure they were. Well, because as you know, in the suites, cheerleaders come by to every suite to say hello to the guests and stuff. Well, they came by to our suite. Okay, so first of all, the Brezhnev guys, they weren't going to shoot them, but I didn't know what they were going to do with them. Okay, but they're like really excited to see these cheerleaders. They come in, they say hello, they go away. So now I'm talking to them and they don't speak English and I don't speak Russian. Right. They, all they could say was cheerleaders. And I, I said Uzi. You know, and I'm trying to get him to show oh me his gosh. gun. He's trying to get me to get an autographed picture of the cheerleaders for him. <laughs> And so we have this just really bizarre conversation. And then at the end of the third quarter, they left.
1: Unbelievable story. That is a, that's, it's a terrific radio story. So, only in radio. Oh, oh,
0: oh, Only in radio. And it, it, it I mean, it, I'm a political science guy. Oh, I'm yeah. a news guy. And I'm stupid because I just, you know what? Ask the question. Right. What was the worst he was going to say to me? It was no, yeah. but I asked it. I can't believe he accepted it. I mean, that is just- Dude. That's but, amazing. When my phone rang, I turned, I mean, white as a ghost. And yeah. everybody's like, what? What? He's coming. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like that scene from Field of Dreams. If right. you build it, he will yeah. come. It's like, he's coming. And they're I, just looking. No. I was like, <laughs> talking, it's like, shh. And I'm talking. And he's coming. And he came. And I've got the pictures. And it actually uh, happened.
1: Well, we're going to put those up. Ken. Thank you so much for the time, man. This has been a, a, just a pure pleasure.
0: Dude, I love spending time with you. you know, thank you for asking me for doing this. Thank you for letting me talk about my favorite subject myself.
1: <laughs> Yourself and radio, man. It doesn't get any better. And, no, and Gorbachev.
0: Me, yeah. I mean, look, radio is, had I gone to be a lawyer, I would probably be a really unhappy guy. The fact that all of this fell into my lap that I happened to leave St. Leo College and went to Florida State. I lived in Cash Hall, which is the the dorm that I lived in. Across the hall was a guy named Tony Venuto, who went back to Tampa, we were from the same town, went back to Tampa, got into radio at this radio station, and helped me get in to get my first job. If that wasn't like, I mean, talk about random luck, chance, whatever you want to call it, had none of that happened, I wouldn't be here. And maybe I'd be a lawyer. Maybe you'd be seeing me sitting at an impeachment trial or God only knows what I would have done. But there's no way I would be as, as happy as I am sitting here today. And there's no way I would have done the crazy, insane, but I mean, really, really fun, amazing things that I've been able to do, including that one. So you know what? I'm just a lucky guy.
1: You are an incredible talent and you found your calling. And uh, I'm glad you did, man. You make some amazing radio.
0: Thanks. I'm, like I said, I've got great people. I'm a really, really lucky guy. And, you know, hey, I hope I get a whole lot, you know, continued luck and success with my guys and my team. And, and you know, let's keep rocking and rolling. Radio has been good to me. I want to be good to it back. Um, and all my life, people have been saying it's the end of radio. It's not. Um, big brands amazing talent always wins no matter the medium. Um, And that's the case now. And I happen to work for a company that believes in both those things.
1: Quick plug, Ken, I just found out you're going to be in Cincinnati for- Uh, for,
0: um, For talk show boot camp. Talk show
1: boot camp. Uh, So uh, if uh, you have not gotten your tickets yet, please uh, make sure you do.
0: Yep. Randy Michaels is going to be there. Oh, fantastic. Um, Mike McVeigh is doing a really cool panel. Gabe does his normal Hobbs report. I mean, and there's everybody and anybody who's in the talk radio profession. So, you know, if you're a host, if you're a programmer, if you're in promotions and you're somewhere near Cincinnati the week of March 5th and 6th, come to talk yeah. show bootcamp. It's absolutely worth your time.
1: Don Anthony puts on a phenomenal event and we'll make sure we put the link up in the show notes as well.
0: Cool. Please do that. I'm on a panel so you can hear me be goofy in front of a microphone yet again.
1: Perfect. Thanks, buddy.
0: Absolutely.